What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show, it's a Tuesday. It is April the 12th year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll on. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us the most precious thing you have, your time for the next hour or so. An hour a day keeps the caterwauling away. We're going to try to turn down the noise on some news items today. Uh, We're going to go overseas. Vladimir Zelensky uh, was on 60 Minutes. He had some really interesting comments we want to highlight. We want to talk about leadership. We want to talk about how he is conducting himself in the PR war, the propaganda war, some folks call it. We'll touch on that in a little bit. Uh, Interesting uh, times with our Senate candidates. We have another person who is utterly unfit for office, folks. Uh, His name is Eric Greetens. He used to be the governor of Missouri until he got ran off with his tail between his legs by then Attorney General Josh Hawley, of all people, and others for abusing a hairdresser, allegedly. Now he is got more trouble and he's starting to fall in the polls, thank God, because he should not be in office. We're going to detail that detail in just a little bit. Also, uh, we always end on an interesting note or an uplifting note. Uh, Our buddy Keith Conrad has his Titanic survivor of the day he puts out on Substack from time to time. Really interesting story. A young tennis star who got in the water, survived the Titanic, was told he was going to have to amputate his legs, refused, fought back. And that story has a very happy ending in the end, although there's some tragedy in the middle. We'll cover that after a bit. But first, uh, we've got a great conversation with one of our favorite po- folks, Eric Medlin, historian. He teaches at the college level in the Raleigh-Durham area. Uh, we're going to talk about a PC road, kind of geared towards Ukraine, but a wider perspective as well. Historians, how much should we use history to apply to current events? Now, I do that a lot myself. I'm kind of a historian at heart, but he talks about it. Historians shouldn't be in the predictive business. They should be in the fact-based business. How should a historian deal with Twitter? And how do things like the Ukraine war and Russia's aggression, how should a historian address that? Great conversation, our friend Eric Medlin, Ordinary Times contributor, author in his own right. He writes local histories on North Carolina. Make sure you buy his books, Eric Medlin, in just a little bit. But first, um, let's talk broader picture Europe, what Russia has wrought. Um, Vladimir Putin despicable human being that he is, war criminal. He doesn't like that. Tough. Sit and spin on it. Vlad. Uh, quit f- 
flattening cities and murdering civilians, we'll call you something else. But the war criminal Vladimir Putin, one of his goals here has been the destruction of NATO. Well, he's had the opposite effect. Now, there's been some bombs that hasn't been perfect, but NATO has come, for the most part, together. And they're not only come together, they're growing. Uh, the Times of London, uh, Russia has made a massive strategic blunder, quoting from the Times, as Finland and Sweden look to join NATO as early as this summer. Washington is banking on the move that will stretch Russia's military and enlarge the Western alliance from 30 to 32 members as a direct consequence of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. U.S. officials said NATO membership for both Nordic countries was, quote, a topic of conversations at multiple sessions during talks between the alliance's foreign ministers last week, attended by both Sweden and Finland. How can this be anything but a massive strategic blunder for Putin, one senior American official said? Remember that. We'll come back to it in just a second. Finland's application is expected in June. Sweden will follow. The Finnish prime minister said it was time for Finland seriously to reconsider its stance on NATO. Quote, Russia is not the neighbor we thought it was, she said at the weekend. Urging the decision to be taken thoroughly, but quickly, she added, I think we'll, we will have very careful discussions, but we are also not talking any more time than we have in this process because the situation is, of course, very severe. Sweden is carrying on a security policy review that will finish by the end of next month, mirroring the Finnish timetable. I do not expect NATO membership in any way, Madeleine Anderson, the Swedish prime minister, said a fortnight ago, but I do not exclude NATO membership now. The countries are working together to build domestic consensus, but officials emphasize the final decision will be taken independently. Both Russia, both face Russia across the Baltic Sea and Finland shares an 830 mile land border. Uh, quick pause here. They also show a lot of history. Russia tried to get at Finland and Finland stopped them cold in the woods. Russia has not forgotten that ignominy, nor have the Finns. Back to the peace. NATO is making plans to deploy a permanent full scale military force on members borders to prevent further Russian invasion and to adopt a, quote, new reality. Jen Stolenberg, NATO's secretary general, said President Putin's actions have provoked a fundamental transformation of the military coalition, which would reflect the long term consequences of the war in Ukraine. Now, there's been a lot of fair criticism of NATO over the years. What's its role in the world? It was designed to stand against the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. So with no Soviet Union, what was its place? Now, by default, some of that was still directed at Russia. It's one of the reasons our intelligence on the Russian invasion of Ukraine was actually pretty good. We've been doing it for 60 years. We're pretty good at it. We've got a lot of inroads into Russia, including, it appears, pretty deep into the Kremlin itself, because Vladimir Putin has been purging and looking for the leaks. Nevertheless, it is fair to criticize NATO over the last post-Cold War period since the early 90s. They've been a little lethargic. They've gotten fat, dumb, and happy off American protection. They haven't always held up their end of defense spending and these sorts of things. But let's temper all that criticism with a little bit of understanding that they're still our allies. They're still our friends. They're not our enemies. NATO's not our enemy. People like Vladimir Putin are our enemy. Now, people want to act like NATO's the enemy and Putin is the victim. Those people need to be marked, shamed, and paid attention to because the only way you believe that is, A, you're completely incognizant to what's actually going on in the world, or B, you think Putin's doing the right thing. If it's B, you're evil. If it's A, you need to work on it. No, Vladimir Putin is not a victim. Russia is not a victim. They're not invading anybody because of NATO expansion. But they're going to get at NATO expansion because they've been invading people. This is not hard, folks. Even the most diehard pacifist who wants nothing but peace and non-interventionalists understand you have to defend your own borders. And there's safety in numbers. And there's safety in the group. 
And these countries are going to join NATO now because they fear Russian aggression, because Vladimir Putin has proved that he won't invade innocent countries. And once he does so, he won't do it militarily. He'll attack your cities. He'll attack your women and children. He'll attack your hospitals and churches and theaters and bus terminals and rail terminals. They'll kill everybody because they think the world should belong to them. In this case, they think all Ukrainians aren't really Ukrainians. They're all Russians that just need to be convinced. And if you're not going to be a Russian, you might as well be dead. And they're doing it. NATO's taking one look at that and saying, we're not having that anywhere else. Finland and Sweden are looking at that and saying, you're not doing that here. And remember, Finland remembers. They've dealt with this before. So good job, Vladimir Putin. You've done the one thing again you thought you were going to do the opposite of. You've repurposed NATO. You've given them focus. You've gotten them to increase defense spending. You've gotten to them to cut some of the fat and get down to fighting shape. And that purpose? Defending against you because you are the evil of our time. More Hertel right after this. Back to Hertel. Let's talk some domestic politics real quick. Uh, we're covering different Senate races across the state. Let's go out to the Show Me State, Missouri. Uh, this is from Politico. Representative Vicki Hartzler's is surging towards the front of the pack in Missouri's GOP Senate primary, reordering a crowded race that's long been marked by former Governor Eric Greenton's leading the polls. For the first time since he entered the primary a year ago, Greenton's grip on the Republican base has lifted. A slide in support in recent weeks attributed to new allegations of domestic violence raised by Greedon's ex-wife. Hartzler is now neck and neck with Greedon's in the open Senate race, according to multiple surveys conducted since Sheena Greedon's, that's the ex-wife, filed court documents March 21 in a child custody case disputing alleged ex-husband abuse of both her and her young son uh, that they have together. The disgraced former governor resigned from office midterm in 2018 following allegations that he sexually assaulted a woman and as part of an agreement with prosecutors to drop a separate computer tampering charge. This is a flashpoint. Now we're talking about domestic violence, said James Harris, a Republican political strategist in Missouri, uh, referencing the allegations against Cretans. These are the new ones, not the old ones. I know it's hard to keep up with this despicable human being, but we must try our best. Now we're talking about abuse. That's a different thing. We're not talking about an affair now. Hold on. There was abuse in the first affair. He allegedly, but it's pretty well corroborated because he resigned from office when they were getting ready to indict him on it. He duct taped a woman to a weight bench and sexually harassed her at best and sexually assaulted her at worst, depending on which version of the story you want to believe. So, yes, there was abuse before. Why people didn't care as much then as they do now. I'll leave that up to you. But now we're talking about an ex-wife that will not go away, will not be shut up, and will not be quiet about it. So she is forcing people to pay attention to his horribleness. Back to Politico. Uh, Greetings fade in the polls is welcome news to some in the party. National GOP leaders have cautioned that Greetings' endorsement could cost the party a GOP-held Senate seat this fall, or more likely force them to spend heavily on a state Donald Trump won by more than 15 percentage points in 2020. That should just turn your stomach. I know this is politics and everything gets forgiven. Look, my first election was the 98 midterms with that's the Bill Clinton impeachment one for those of you that weren't around for that ball of fun. Uh, I get hypocrisy. I get people excusing stuff for their guy. It's been a part of my political lessons in America since my very first vote 
very literally in this case, because I my first vote was in that 98 midterm. Folks, this should disgust everybody. This man is as blatantly unfit for office as he gets. He abuses women. He lies about it. He computer tampered. That charge was dropped in exchange for him leaving uh, the governorship. Uh, he was going to be prosecuted by then uh, Attorney General from Missouri, one Josh Hawley, who in other matters I can't stand, but in this particular case did his job and brought forth the allegations to the point that Greetings had to tuck tail and run. Now he's trying to get back in. This man is unfit. He has no business anywhere near elected office. He should probably be in jail. And the ex-wife's allegations are helping to drive down his poll numbers. Now, normally, when there's a divorce situation and a custody situation, we say we should leave those things alone because a lot of things get said during a divorce on all sides. Some of it are meant, some of it are not, some of it are harsh. Those things are hard to parse out. But in this particular case, she's saying things that are consistent with a previous investigation. We know the content of this man's character. He has none. He is a bad human being. He would be a worse political office holder. He has no business being anywhere near elected office that Republicans, and I don't care if he was a Democrat, an independent, or a purple hippopotamus, I would say the exact same thing. The fact that there's any political calculation here whatsoever is disgusting. He should be drubbed out of the party. He should be drubbed out of the public sphere. He should be shouted down every time he opens his mouth until he fully repents and takes accountability for his actions, which he's never done, by the way. This man does not deserve to be in office. We have to get past politics on certain things. Duct taping women to weight benches and harassing them because they're going to expose your affair. That should be a nice thick red line. Domestic violence against your wife and child. That should be a nice thick red line. There ain't no Senate seat in the world or any other political office or anything else that's worth that and the damage you're doing to yourself and your own character by trying to excuse it. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's back. He's our history buddy. He teaches history at the college level up around the Raleigh area in North Carolina. He's also an author in his own right, wrote some local histories, working on some more in the future, we're told. Eric Medlin, frequent contributor to Ordinary-Times.com. How are you, sir? Fantastic. How are you doing, Andrew? Uh, great having you back again. You wrote an absolutely amazing piece. Uh, we had it in Ordinary-Times.com. It's called In Defense of Useful History. Let's preface it this way. Like everything else with social media, we have superstar historians on social media now. Uh, we have a higher, uh, I don't know how you want to call it, a higher ability to dig into history because we have these great devices in the palm of our hands that have the entire depth and breadth of human history in them. All we got to do is ask Google about it. What's the proper use for history when we're dealing with breaking news like, a, like the war in Ukraine? We all know we can go and look into the background of it. But what's the proper use? You're a historian, so doing stuff in real time isn't really your thing, and yet people like me, that's what I do. I usually go to history first for parallels and to try to get my bearings on things, but as a history teacher, how do you see it? What's the proper usage there? Well, I think that history provides precedence, and it provides context, and it provides something that we don't have as much nowadays in our social media age. We get a lot of phenomena where it seems like something has never happened before and we don't know how to process it. And our approach is usually fear and hyperbole and shock and it's the end of the world or it's the end of society or it's the end of capitalism or whatever 
nuclear war, something along those lines. And I feel like history provides this safe anchor, this, this comforting voice saying, this has happened before, it had this particular outcome, but one of the outcomes is that we're still here and that we're still around, we still have society, we still have creature comforts and, and our, our livelihoods and our structures and our familiarity. And that's good or bad in, in some ways and in some different contexts. We still have problems, we still have issues. But history to me is very helpful in showing, okay, conditions similar to the ones happening right now, happening in the, the public intellectual sphere like you're talking about, have happened. Here's how people of the past navigated them, made the best of them, made them work out, and here's what they did right, and here's what the, they did wrong. And I think that that's the role of history in the, in the public intellectual space. It's not to, to just bolster a simple political argument or to make the most dramatic point possible for clicks and likes and retweets. It's to provide context and to help us figure out uh, what to do going forward. Part of this comes from uh, a line I use on this program a lot. I use it in my writing too, but I always talk about things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Well, history is that sequence to get it there. When we apply it to something like Ukraine, which is very complicated because, look, this is a region of the world that um, is always in flux. Uh, Ukraine, the land space, not, not just the people and the cultural group, has been under domination by outside forces for as long as we have recorded human history, not just the Russians. You can go all the way back to Genghis Khan if you really want to. That This goes way back. How do we start parsing through history when we have a really complicated current event like this and you have somebody like Vladimir Putin who comes out with an untruth like, well, Ukraine's never been its own country, it's never been its own people group. Well, history is what we would go to to prove or disprove that fact. What's a good way for folks to kind of dig into something like that? Because you're talking about thousands of years of human history, but we have this pressing need to kind of get through it in a big hurry because we got tanks rolling at us. How do we handle that? Exactly. And I think that that's a concept that historians have to be familiar with, and especially historians trying to do this kind of public intellectual work. History is what's known as a chaotic event. There, the butterfly effect applies. There are thousands and thousands of different events and thousands and thousands of possible precedents. And so what I think we need to do is when we have a, an event such as Ukraine, what we need to do is kind of start with the most, I don't know, I don't know what one could say. Try to find the closest parallel. Try to find the parallel where the, the circumstances fit the best. Like uh, the one that I used in a piece I had for Arc Digital was the, um, was the, the, the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. That was a country very close to the, the uh, borders of Russia. It was in the USSR. There was a revolution. Uh, the Russians and the Warsaw Pact countries sent in tanks and crushed the revolution. That was very close and it had lots of, of parallels to the present day. And so you're trying to find an event that has parallels, that has similarities, and also that that tells a story and that makes a point about different responses to that event that we can have. So you look at 
Hungary is in this, the, the Hungarian Revolution 1956 is in this particular uh, explosive geopolitical moment, similar to today, but not exactly the same. And then you know, the countries, England, uh, France, the United States responded in a particular way, and they're going to respond at this time. And so it's just kind of trying to find the most helpful parallel, not the parallel that's going to get you the most attention, like mentioning Hitler in the context of uh, history and public relations. We're talking to our buddy uh, Eric Medlin, a historian. We have a recency bias anytime we're dealing with history, especially in the public sphere, especially on social media. But you just alluded to it. This specter of the Soviet Union looms really, really large here for a lot of very good reasons. Uh, historically, this is, you know, they were under Ukraine was under Soviet domination. Uh, Putin's a KGB guy from the Soviet days. Um, it's an it's an inescapable conversation here because we have the cold war which the west sees as this great victory this great um this great triumph of humanity over a bad system and then we get reminded that there's bad actors like the putins of the world who saw that as a terrible wrong that needs to be righted even though it's a recency bias a little bit there's a lot of learning to be done on things like the cold war that we don't think about this way but that's over a generation gone now and maybe we haven't retaught some of those lessons properly and then something like ukraine happens and all of a sudden people are like oh my goodness why are these folks fighting and we need to reteach it again how much of history is just being repetitive with it because every 5 10 15 years you've got a new generation and you've got to teach this stuff all over again don't you well that's exactly right and something that happens with many different historical events and it happened with the, the Soviet Union and our understanding of the USSR is the new availability of sources. USSR opened up its archives in the early 90s. There's this fascinating story of how researchers rushed in to, to get these, these papers before they were going to be you know, spread to all four corners of the earth. And a lot of those papers helped historians re-litigate uh, re the Soviet Union and re-litigate the story of those past several decades. And so, and then they, they published books and articles and they taught the, the things that were, were that, that the West had gotten wrong about the Soviet Union and that the earlier histories had gotten wrong. And so there's always more sources. And also mid to late nineties, Soviet Union falls out of the headlines, people maybe aren't as listen, listening as much to those new histories. And so public attention, new sources, new historians with new methodologies, all of that plays into this, what you're saying, this need to reteach history over and over and over again. The events happened, they stayed the same, but our sources and our approach and our mindset and the attention we're paying changed. Talking to Eric Medlin, our history friend, frequent contributor at Ordinary-Times.com, published author in his own right. Okay, when you take something really big, like a shooting war, like this is pretty much the largest land war in Europe since World War II, this is a consequential event. As a historian, when you start looking at this, do you start making little mental notes as it's happening, knowing that you're going to have to go back and you're going to be studying this for pretty much the rest of your life? Like, <laughs> this is going to be a big deal for, for the next 50, 60, 70 years. 
do you kind of start taking little notes as it's happening, as it's developing? Like, okay, I need to go back and research this. Okay, here's a parallel I'm going to look at later. Oh, here's this story. This don't feel exactly right. I want to leave this one alone and come back to it later. How are you viewing this as a historian as it's unfolding in front of us? Well, you're really reading the, the the first draft of history from from journalists, from people who are on the ground, people who are analyzing the situation in your New York Times, your Atlantic, your New Yorker, all of those different things. You you get the the real time analysis and information, and you try to just as a historian, you're just an, a publicly interested person. You want to see. What's happening? You want to see where it's going to go. And you do, you kind of take notes, you see what what might be relevant, you see what you may want to come back to later, how something will will develop, um, and what earlier process um, is starting to look like it might happen again. Like I keep posting um, about and telling people that Ordinary Times needs to have a, uh, I think it's a mud week or a tire week or something along those lines, because there's this, there's this idea that maybe, you know, one of the things holding Russia back was the, the, uh, the melting snow and the mud and the poor logistics. And does that harken back to those earlier invasions of Russia in the early 19th century? And usually as a historian, you want to be careful making too many parallels between the modern information age and the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, because they're so fundamentally different in so many different ways. Those people would be alien to us and we would be alien to them. But in some particular ways, if you start looking at situations that are unfolding, you can start to see maybe those earlier helpful parallels can teach us something about what's going on. Yeah, I am a logistics guy. I'll tell you with 100% certainty, the Russians' logistics suck. We know they've sucked for years and years and years. And now you got the evidence because they don't know how to do logistics. They don't prioritize it. Uh, we treat our logistics as a weapon system in the U.S. military. That's why we're so great at what we do. And they don't. And you're seeing the results of it. But that's another story for another day. Uh, historian Eric Medlin, we're going to continue with him in a minute. We're going to go into an example that he wrote about in Ordinary Times, some pushback about using history in real time like that, and also talk about uh, a habit of some of the, uh, we'll call them Twitter famous historians to get into the prediction business, which is a little antithetical to being a historian. We'll get into all that. Our friend Eric Medlin, historian, more her tell right after Welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking a little history in real time. Our buddy, Eric Medlin, he's a history teacher in the Raleigh area at the college level, frequent contributor to Ordinary-Time.com, and a public published author in his own right, writing some local histories. We'll talk about those in a little bit. Okay, you took an example in your piece uh, in defense of a useful history in Ordinary Times. There's some pushback that some, some people make about using history in real time. Uh, Jonathan Katz, you pointed out to this piece that he wrote, he had a little bit of skepticism of history in the public intellectual debates over Ukraine. Just lay that out because I don't agree with everything he says, but I see that he has, I think he has some salient points, at least of how to address and look at some of these issues, doesn't he? 
Yeah, he does. And he, the, the issue with that piece, and I love Jonathan Katz. I saw that piece because I follow him and read a lot of work that he does. The, the issue that he had was he jumped to the, the example that I mentioned earlier of, of everything is Hitler. Everything is World War III. Everything is Munich and Nazi Germany and, and nuclear war and all that. So he saw history as leading to the, the use of history as leading to hyperbole, which I, I thought that if one uses history for that purpose, that's, that's not a good use of it. And so he had a point there. And he also mentioned what, what I talked about earlier the the chaotic nature of history that you know you don't want to use one precedent because there are thousands and thousands of possible precedents and i don't think that that's particularly helpful it's a chaotic system history is a chaotic system but that doesn't mean that you can't learn anything from it it's like the weather is a chaotic system and you don't fire the weatherman you know you don't fire the meteorologists because they get things wrong sometimes you glean the information that you can, you use the tool, even though it's imperfect. And so I think that Katz, what Katz really wanted, I think deep down was just a better use of history, a better, um, more reasonable, more studied, less doom and click worthy history. This is a lot bigger question, but I'm going to pose it to you anyway. There's a real problem with history and historians in that they don't, and and this is not you know exclusive to historians. We're not picking on them here. All all the academic disciplines have this problem, but historians especially sometimes they don't know what to do with healthy skepticism in their discipline field. And what I mean by that is the reason Katz doesn't really get there, but he kind of dances around it. The reason we keep going to World War II is that's one of the few things in history that is really clear cut. There was a definitive good guy. There's a definitive. That's as close to Mm -hmm. good guy, bad guy, black and white as you get in history. And I think that's why we go back to it so frequently is it it stays in the parlance because that's the easiest one to understand. And sometimes historians, you know, they they struggle with the proper use. You touched about it on your piece. You know, you said Katz's piece is a tidy argument for skepticism and historical analysis by public intellectuals. Sometimes we don't know how to really use skepticism in a healthy way because part of history, yeah, it's chaotic, but there are facts and truth to be found in here. And yeah, there's gray areas, but you still got to get to Hitler's evil somewhere in there, right? And that's the extreme example, but that's why people go to World War II, isn't it? Because that's the one they can get their head around. Is, is that what you think the case is? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And, and this was actually uh, what, my, what my master's thesis was about many moons ago. Uh, was about the the role of historians in the public sphere and historians as public intellectuals. And the historical profession has become more, over the past 40, 50 years or so, historical profession has become much more standardized and dependent on the PhD and dependent on academic work and the use of jargon and all that fun stuff. And so the profession has moved kind of past much of the public, much of the public is still buying, you know, your David McCullough's and your Doris Kearns Goodwin's and your basic stories of good versus evil. The David McCullough building the, the Brooklyn Bridge is neat, things like that. And the academic historians are focusing on very complicated 
structures of power and, and discourses between different groups that don't that don't lend themselves easily to public intellectual analysis. And there's this real desire, there's this real demand for it. And so people are turning to non-historians and they're turning to maybe historians who are very who are much better at talking to social media than they are at looking at history, analyzing sources, making arguments that are not influenced by their ideology, but actually by the sources, colored by their own interpretation, of course, but actually based on the historical sources, on the truth and the facts. Yeah, there's been a running joke about uh, there's David McCullough, the narrator of history, and David McCullough, the writer of history, and never the twain will meet. Um, kind of goes to what you're talking about. Uh, talking to our buddy Eric Medlin, uh, historian in his own right, published author in his own right. Uh, let's just to use one example, since we're talking about World War II, Neville Chamberlain, you mentioned him in your piece. Here's one where it looks like it's pretty clear cut. Oh, he appeased the Nazis. He's a bad guy. There's the famous photo of him waving the paper and going, peace in our time, which was you know foolhardy. But then we forget the parts about yeah, he's the guy that prioritized the Royal Air Force and built it up. And that's what kind of kept the Nazis out of England and saved England until we entered the war. And that's just one example of this stuff gets really complicated if you get past the the buzzwordiness of it. So, yeah, Neville Chamberlain had that bad photo op. He, he got virally canceled, to put it in the normal parlance. But then but he's also had a hand in the part that saved England until we came into the war and the war evolved. As a historian, when you go to teach something like that, like a Neville Chamberlain, like a U.S. president that's problematic, like a Nixon or a, or whoever, pick one. How do you go about getting into those gray areas of like, yes, your perception is mostly true, but what we really need to learn to apply to today is in that 10, 15, 20 percent that's gray area at the same time? Yeah, and that's something that the historical profession does that I don't think some people fully understand outside of the historical profession. They think that there's there's one story, there's one interpretation, like Neville Chamberlain at Munich. And actually, it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it depends on what sources you use, if, if new sources become available, if you focus on this source rather than that source, things like that. But when I have my class, I try to I try to make some sort of an argument. I think that some historians and some history teachers will try to say that they just present all the facts and they let their students make up their minds. And I don't think that that's what your job is as a, as a history instructor. I think it is to make an argument based on your interpretation of the sources, based on that information, try to make it as well-rounded as possible Try not to have your biases influence it to a certain degree um, to what's possible. And then your students, you know, they can have their own interpretation. They can challenge you. They can discuss the topics and there's discussion times and they can raise their hands and ask all that. But it's your job, at least to a certain degree. You can't say, you know, let's say Neville Chamberlain. Some people believe this about Neville Chamberlain. Some people believe that about Neville Chamberlain. You figure it out. It, it doesn't work that way. Talking to Eric Madeline. Okay, let's let's go to the kind of the crux of the end of your piece, though. When you're dealing with historians, um, there's some famous ones. We're not going to name drop folks here, but there's a couple of really famous, especially Twitter famous, social media famous historians. You've said they've gotten into the prediction business. 
I understand the, um, you know, it's like a like a person that covers sports. All of a sudden, now you want to start predicting games because you understand the stats. I get it. I get the temptation. But you touch on the fact that it's like, especially in the public sphere where you're not in it, it it's probably one thing to do it in the academic environment. Uh, in the public sphere where people are looking for some, some out-of-context, black-and-white, quick hit, which way is this going to go? You don't feel that's the really good place for a historian to fly the historian flag, do you? Well, you have to be very, very, very careful. And especially on something like predicting what would happen with Ukraine, there's no, there's no ability to do that as a historian. And you're, you're not a seer, you're interpreting sources, you're using sources. And I think that prediction is always a, a questionable business with public intellectuals. I've read some research on public intellectuals. They make lots of predictions. They're often untrue. And it's the, the, the nature of the business to just ignore when you have an inaccurate prediction. Just move on. Just keep going. Pretend that it didn't happen. And I think that if you're a historian you and you do make a prediction, you need to acknowledge if you're right or wrong and explain why and explain how. And I feel like most of the people who make those predictions aren't going to do that. And it's just going to kind of cheapen their work. Yeah. Eric Medlin, a historian, friend of ours. Uh, let's go back to where we started to kind of put a bow on all this. Again, the the events in Ukraine, this is um, not unprecedented, as we've already laid out, because this stuff does, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes a whole lot. And this is kind of a remix. When we look back on this with Ukraine, and we don't know what's going to happen, we're not going to predict the future here. What do you think some of the lessons leading up to it is because a lot of people did get it wrong. I, I was one of them. I thought this would be another brinksmanship. I thought he would do brinksmanship or he would go into the controlled regions where they weren't going to really fight him, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe that was wishful thinking on my part, but a lot of people thought that. Um, and then we find out we had the intelligence for months and months ahead of time that this was going to happen. What do you think the lessons in the run up to Ukraine? Because we've got a little bit of space on that part. What do you think the historical lessons on the run up to this is going to be? Other than I think a large portion of the world has just been shocked back in the reality of, oh, yeah, we can have a shooting massive land war in this day and age, which I think historically some people have been lulled to sleep like maybe that wasn't going to happen. But you're a historian. Peace is the exception. War is kind of the constant. What is that the main lesson we're going to take away from this? Or what are you going to think we should take away from this looking forward? Well, I want to touch on two things. One, the domestic front and one, the international front. Domestically, I think that we've had this post-Watergate distrust of institutions that's caused all of these different problems in our society. And one of those institutions is the intelligence field is the, the, the defense department and all that. And they got this one, right. (laughs) They got this one, right. Why did they get this one? Right. What kind of, perhaps what kind of intelligence did they have? How did they predict that? And how should we look at those pronouncements moving forward? I think that that's one thing we need to consider and look back on. These are people that we like to criticize and they're often worthy of criticism, but they got this one, right. Why? And On the international front, I think that it lulls us out of our sense of complacency, as you just mentioned, and it it kind of, there's a chance that it's going to bring the the world back a little bit, and in a good way, back to this slightly less skeptical time where in, in the 
20 teens after the Great Recession, there's this real distrust of uh, internationalism, of the EU, of this, this growth in populism, this attachment to authoritarianism authoritarianism to Russia and more recently towards Hungary, I think that's going to diminish a little bit. I think we're going to go back to a time where people work together partially because they were afraid of Russia and they're going to start being afraid of Russia again. And maybe that's going to lead to a little more collaboration. Now that collaboration is going to happen without the world's largest country by landmass. And how is and that's going to be influential as well. All these other countries are going to have to work together in order to pick up the slack because they're going to keep Russia out of these economic relationships and these political relationships for a good long while. So I see the world in tragedy, the world coming together a little bit more. Than yeah, we can only hope so. Uh, Eric Medlin, he always does great stuff at Ordinary-Times.com. He also writes his own page at Medium. He has a book out, Local History in North Carolina. Make sure you go check that out. We're always thrilled to have you back. Uh, until folks see you again, though, let them know where you're writing and your social media so they can follow you until we get you back on, my friend. Follow me on Twitter at Medlin Writes and ericmedlin.medium.com. And he's uh, just about a weekly write-up at Ordinary-Times.com. Thrilled to have him. Always a good conversation. You write good stuff, my friend. You do good work. And we appreciate your time greatly today. Appreciate it. Definitely. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks, sir. Uh, back overseas, but this actually happened here on 60 Minutes Domestically. Uh, President Vladimir Zelensky of one, two, or three Ys, depending on your preference. I still do the one, but a lot of people have gone to the double Y. Your mileage may vary. Uh, he was on 60 Minutes. He had an interesting interview, but there's a line in here I want to pay particular attention to. Obviously, his leadership has been exemplary. The way he has conducted himself is something to pay attention to. We've already talked about the contrast between him and thug, murderous dictator, Vladimir Putin, who is completely isolated in a bunker mentality, and the contrast with Western leaders, particularly our own president, who has not shown the strength of character that this man has. But anyway, he said this quote, this is from the 60 Minutes interview, this is not a movie, this is real life. Stop fearing the Russian Federation. We've shown we are not afraid. We are defending the ability of a person to live in the modern world. We are defending the right to live. I never thought this right was so costly. These are human values so that Russia doesn't choose what we should do and how I'm exercising my right. That right was given to me by God and by my parents. Zelensky spoke to Paley face-to-face in an interview in what Paley characterized as, quote, the blacked-out hallways of his command center in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. The interview was interspersed with footage of Paley and his CBS crew talking to the civilians in Bucha, Ukraine. That's where the atrocities that have been uncovered um, occurred along with a lot of other places. After explaining his decision to stand and fight the Russian invasion, quote, when everyone is telling you you need to go, you need to think, Zelensky said over and over that the world also needed to make a stand. Quote, I remember, all of us remember, he said, books about the Second World War, about the devil in uniform, Adolf Hitler. Are those countries who did not participate in the war responsible? The countries who let Germany forced marches through Europe. Does the world carry responsibility for genocide? Yes. Yes, it does. To be honest, this is Zelensky speaking. 
Whether we will be able to survive depends on this. He said, I have 100% confidence in our people and our armed forces, but unfortunately, I don't have the confidence that we will receive everything we need. Zelensky made it clear that much depended on the American response. Quote, the President Biden can enter history as a person who stood shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainian people who won and chose the right to have their own country. Peely asked whether he was disappointed in Biden. Important difference here. The politician shines through right here. This is a great answer to a tough question that he could have went much harsher on, in my opinion. No, Zelensky said, I'm not disappointed. I know how another president in his place would help us. I don't know. It's difficult. We have a good relationship. I think so, at least. Ukraine depends on the support of the United States, and I, as the leader of a country at war, can only be grateful. Some words directly from the man himself, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, he's a really good politician, folks. He is doing a masterclass in how to use media, how to use public relations, how to be a symbol, how to lead through the media and lead on the ground and lead by example. Um, this is going to be something that's going to be studied long into the future. You're getting to see it in real time. He's handled when he speaks to the parliament in Britain. He tailors his message to them. When he spoke to the U.S. Congress and Senate, he tailored their message to them. Uh, you're going to learn a lot of lessons in leadership from how Zelensky has handled this crisis. The Ukrainians are paying a fearful price, but they're winning what they needed, their freedom, their independence. And as I wrote before in the beginning of this conflict, the thing that Vladimir Putin lied about is his reason for war in the first place. He said they're not a real country with a real identity. Well, Vladimir Putin gave them that real country with a real identity, and Zelensky just reiterated it. They're the people that stood up to Russia. They're the people that stood up to Vladimir Putin. They're the people that endured genocide and war crimes and kept fighting anyway because, in Zelensky's own word, words, we are defending our the ability of a person to live in the modern world so that Russia doesn't choose what we should do and how I'm exercising my rights. That right was given to me by God and my parents. And that would fit right into the founding documents of America without any translation needed. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we usually end on a lighter note or something like that because we have really heavy topics. This isn't that. This is a piece of history that I found really interesting. Our buddy Keith Conrad uh, does a substack called uh, News Side Quest. I grab items from it from time to time. He's a good friend of ours, good friend of the program. We ought to actually have Keith on one of these days. He tells great stories. But anyway, he did a Titanic survivor of the day. He has a little thing about the Titanic. Or if you're his wife, Misty, he has a very big thing of the Titanic as in a replica model that is in his home that is very quite large. But anyway, uh, Titanic survivor of the day, Richard Norris Williams was 21-year-old American tennis player. He was supposed to sail earlier, but he had a bout of the measles, so he and his father ended up on the Titanic. After the Titanic hit the iceberg, he and his father weren't sure what to do, so they headed to the bar because, of course, they did. On their way, they ran into a steward trying to open a stuck door. Richard rammed his shoulder against the door and it broke open. The steward, as depicted in the James Cameron film, told Richard that he'd reported to the White Star line for damages. The bar was closed, so they ultimately ended up in the gymnasium. As the ship sank, Richard was pulled out to the sea and saw his father get killed by one of the falling smokestacks. He spent quite some time in the freezing water before making it to the collapsible A, 
that's one of the life bolts. Um, but that was filled with about a foot of water. Once rescued by the Carpathia, the ship's doctor took one look at the young tennis player's frozen legs and cheerfully advised, that's in quotes, amputation. He refused and he instead walked the deck of the Carpathia every two hours and was eventually able to restore circulation. He avoided amputation and then he went on to win the U.S. Tennis Championship, forerunner to the U.S. Open later that same year. Cool little piece of history from a disaster. They should have put that in a movie. It would have been a lot better than everybody has to die because of the worst movie villain of all time, Rose. Say what I said. That'll do it for her tell today. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Make sure you're subscribed, however you're watching or listening on YouTube. We got all the different playlists on there. We have the Good Talks playlist. You also have the long-form podcast. There's 36 of those where we deep dive into individual issues. We're actually planning to do a couple new ones on that, so make sure you check on that. Also, the Twice on Sunday show. You'll find that on there with some condensed clips from the week that was. Wherever you are watching and or listening, we sure appreciate you. Make sure you rate, leave a rating and a comment. It's a big deal for us. Let's folks know to check out our program. So until we see you again tomorrow for more Herd Tell, wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow on Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Sauce.